This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hi, this is Mike Lord from Tabletop Genesis. This is Tom. Hey, this is Stacy. This is Simon. And this is an older Ellie. With that all being said, the reason why we're here and why you're here is to talk, hear us talk about selling England by the pound. And so, Simon, I'm going to throw over to you again so we can get the summary from Wikipedia. Um, well, in some cases, the Wikipedia entries have been actually quite scant, and I'm, I'm specifically <laughs> referencing uh, poor old Mike with Small Creeps Day. <laughs> this, on the other hand, practically is war in peace right. on uh, on Wikipedia. You I am li- judicious editor. I am. Yeah. I'm literally going to sort of just give you the thir- first three paragraphs of it. So, Selling England by the Pound is the fifth studio album from English progressive rock band Genesis, released in October 1973 on Charisma Records. It reached number three in the UK and number 70 in the USA. A single from the album I Know What I Like in Your Wardrobe was released in February of 1974 and became the band's first top 30 hit in the UK. The album was recorded in August 1973 following the tour supporting the previous album Foxtrot in 1972. The group set aside a short period of time to write new material which covered a number of themes including the loss of the English folk culture which I'd like to speak to you guys about a little while and an increased American influence which was reflected in the title. Following the album's release, the group set out on tour where they drew an enthusiastic reception from fans. Critics and the band have given mixed opinions of the album, though guitarist Steve Hackett is said that it is his favourite Genesis record. The album's continued to sell well and has reached gold certification by the British Phonographic Industry and the Recording Industry Association of America. It was remastered for CD in 1994 and also 2007. Several of the album tracks became fan favourites and featured as a regular part of the band's live set list well into the 80s. I think that's actually a pretty good summary of the album there. Sometimes Wikipedia comes out of nowhere with things, and I think that's actually a pretty good description. Oh, well, there we that was very think, helpful. Think, I've think, never heard of this album before. <laughs> <laughs> I think can, this has been Tom. Yes, exactly. This is Mike. This is Ellie. Thank you very much. How did do you all remember the first time you you got this album or the first time you heard it? No, I actually have no memory at all of, of ever buying this there. album. Okay. Yeah. yeah, me neither. I mean, I think I, I I heard songs separately, not the whole sure. album at once. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I think I got it somewhere in the summer of '87, when I was going back through the catalog and getting everything, you know, from Visible Touch backwards. And I kind of skipped around when I got Invisible Touch, then Genesis, then I kind of hopped around. I got Trick of the Tail, Wind and Wuthering, maybe Selling England. Mm-hmm. And I specifically, I don't know why this sticks in my head, maybe because I can't believe I was actually contemplating this, was selling it back to the CD. 
to sell to the CD store because at that time you could actually get money for selling CDs back to the store. Right. They would give you at least half of the amount that you bought it for, and because this album wasn't doing anything for me. And then at the end, I was like, oh, but I recognize that small bit from the Mama Tour video when they play it in the medley. Maybe I'll give it another chance. <laughs> you were so, so close, Tom. I was so uh, close just... to not even sitting around this table. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember exactly when I got this album, but like Tom, it was part of the whole like going back in, filling in the holes of the catalog um, exercise. So I can't remember exactly when my first listen of it, but I have to say, of all the the Genesis albums. That I um, that I've acquired. Um, this is the one I listened to on the headphones the most, mm -hmm. and it's also one I remember. I think it was the first one I did listen to on, on headphones. I think you know when I got all the other albums, I might have just popped it into my car CD player or um, you know my stereo at home. Mm -hmm. But this one, I was like, oh, I'm gonna try it on the headphones, and what a great idea that was. <laughs> um, and this became my. Um, my relaxation tape for and it still is in some ways I call it my little spa album it just relaxes me I just I can immerse this is the album I can immerse myself in um, from Listeners start to finish see it, but, but Stacey's doing downward dog right now yoga yes, <laughs> yes on my yoga mat <laughs> that I don't own <laughs> um, so you know I, I have a lot of you know memories of you know, a rough day working at the drugstore, whatever crappy job I had when I was a teenager and coming home, putting on the headphones and just <sighs> my happy place. <laughs> I remember like like all of you, I don't remember the first time I got this album because, you know, when you get to be old enough, you rebuy things many times. But this, I can tell you, I must have had this on LP. And then... It was the very first CD I bought. Wow. So I knew that I was get. I actually knew I was getting a CD player for Christmas of 87, maybe. And before it came out, before I got, before Christmas came around, I was like, I want to have something to listen to. And so I bought the CD for this album because I thought that, oh, this will sound so much better in CD, but with Peter's voice at the beginning. Yeah. And it did, and I, and I was like, wow, this is, I wish I still had that CD, but that was the very first CD of thousands that I ended up buying <laughs> over the course of the last, God, now 30 years ago. So, If you're listening to this in 100 years time. Yes, it, just add 100. <laughs> but that was, the, that, that was the very first one that I had. So, you know, there's my Genesis Street cred for you all. Um, that it was my first CD that I bought. And I love this album. I, th I do think, I don't know if it's my favorite album. I think that changes by the day at times, depending upon how I feel about the music. Can I ask, were you, were you planning on selling that album back too? <laughs> I can say I never planned on selling it back, but I, but it, you know, when you're, when you're growing up in the eighties and then you expose yourself to this music, it's, I think that's, I think there were probably a lot of people like Tom who kind of said like, oh, this isn't like Invisible Touch. This isn't like the Mama album. I'm going to return this because right. it wasn't what they were looking for. And I do think that, you know, those are people that maybe if they had lived during the 70s wouldn't have liked Genesis even back then. And so for people, 
like us, not that I want to pat ourselves on the back or anything, but who see a bit more of the entirety of the career of Genesis mm-hmm. and like parts of all of that. Um, this is <laughs> the you you passed the test, Tom. It was like the moment when you could have taken you you could have taken the one ring for yourself, and you did. I mean, not to go too much of a tangent, but it's true. The uh, the uh, some of the the most loved albums take a couple listens or a couple years to get into. Mm-hmm. I'm there's a, a Spock's Beard album that I hated until last mm-hmm. year, and I had it in my CD collection for over ten years, wow. and then it finally clicked, mm-hmm. and it's now I think one of the greatest things I've ever heard. So. Sometimes. Which what just which one is that for our listeners? The light. I do not know that album, so I just figured our listeners may be curious. Well, I can lend it to you, and then oh, you can okay. return to me in ten years. Right. You yeah. it. <laughs> well, once it kind of sinks in yeah. with that. Now, just to continue briefly on this tangent, I had the same experience with the Wall with Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. I, I just could not get into it. I tried because I love Dark Side, and then I put it away for six months. I came back six months later, and I could not stop playing it. Somehow, I was at a different point. It clicked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happened to me with the Court of the Kings, in the Court of the Crimson. <laughs> in the Court of... <laughs> <laughs> and how much uh, beer have you had, birthday girl? <laughs> in the Court of the Crimson King. Very good. The first time I listened to it, I was like, what? And then maybe a month later, I became addicted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's these esoteric albums that we that people get into... And that requires some effort. All my story with that was uh, Radiohead's OK Computer, where when that came out in 96, 97, I had heard great things about it. Album of the Year and a lot of different uh, write-ups about it. And I was, and I said, oh, let me give this a shot. I've, I've heard decent things about Radiohead. And for the first couple of listens, I was like, eh, I'm like, I'm not quite sure why this is, people think this is so good. It's OK, computer <laughs> but it was it was not the it was not great and maybe about the fifth listen it clicked and that's when it was like this is an awesome album and so yeah it, sometimes it takes 10 years sometimes it takes a couple days six months whatever it might be i'm still waiting to have radiohead <laughs> click with me and pink floyd and right. pink floyd right. but again give it time the moral story is be patient right. be patient yeah so and not everything kind of clicks the first time around. So Tom, again, we are glad that this album did click for you. We're going to do actually two things slightly different in this podcast. Uh, when we met up with Steve Hackett previously, we asked him to go through this album track by track, which he very kindly did, so that you can hear what his you know one sentence, one line kind of impression of these tracks are, and then we can discuss that also. And also, I tweeted out today from our Twitter account, uh, Genesis Tabletop, at Genesis Tabletop, uh, telling people we were recording this, so some people have kind of sent in things that they want us to discuss. And while we may not cover everything, I may be asking the Tabletop to respond to some tweets we have about this album. Cool. So, they might not be very well educated <laughs> responses. Right. You may, this, this may be the game of stump the tabletop and see how, uh, see how that works out. Exactly. Uh, so with that, we will go into Dancing with the Moonlit Night. If there was um, a, um, a song that defined what excited me about Genesis of this period, I would say it was Dancing with the Moonlit Night. Um, okay. Um, a song that goes through so many different changes from Scottish plain song to something Elgarian to uh, to something that owes more to fusion and jazz and um, 
uh, you know, it's, it's a song that, that travels a long way. It, it, within the course of that of that song, you feel it's over the hills and far away, and then suddenly it's um, you know pitched into um, something much more angular. And uh, and I do think the band's playing and ideas was was terrific on that one. I like that word Elgari. Elgarian, yeah. Elgar, Elgar, Elgar land of that, hope and glory, yeah, all of that. Exactly. Um, yeah, thematic and hymn-like and uh, and. Um, all of that kind of stuff, and all, all things uh, related to the national anthems. Can you tell me where my country lies? Said the uniform to his true love's eyes. It lies with me, cried the queen of maybe, for her merchandise he traded in his prize. that I love about the song is is how ahead of its time the band was. They were doing a Sting song 30-something <laughs> years before Sting actually did it. So that was very impressive. Oh. <laughs> of course, what I'm referring to is if anyone saw the Peter Gabriel Sting tour, yeah. Sting had played this... Yeah. Explain the, your joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody make sure they get it. Because jokes are always better when they're explained. <laughs> no, you're totally right. And that was, I, I will say, that was a great moment in that show. Um, and I think on the very last show of that tour, Peter actually sang it instead of Sting, which I think would have had at least some people in the audience in kind of tears of memory at that point. Many people, I guess. Yes. And some people going, huh? Quite different. You know? Huh? Huh? You <laughs> 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 don't understand. Yeah. That's another joke. Yes. No, but it's, anyway. it's probably one of the... I was thinking about this when I was listening to this album. Like, every album, Genesis had a fantastic opener. Like, they really knew mm -hmm. how to mm -hmm. open an album and get your attention right from the start. And to have Peter singing a cappella for the first couple lines... I mean, I was trying to think of any other band... That opened an album like that twice. Twice. What was the other time? Trespass. Looking for someone. It sort of has a little bit of instrument. So, so. Some bass lines. <laughs> yeah. But that's very. I mean, they as as Steve will will say about this track. It's just it's got so many different things where you don't know what direction it's going in. Like you here's this is this going to be a acoustic song? Is this going to be a a rock song? What what's going to happen this with with this track? This track for me encapsulates what this er era of early Genesis was all about because it is in some ways the kitchen sink. Everything is thrown into this track and it all works. It all comes together 
in a really clever and emotional way. There's there's a lot of passion in this music, and that comes through for me. It's an iconic track, and, and I I don't want to sort of come across as, as any kind of expert on this, but one <laughs> of the things that I will say is around about the end of the 60s, start of the 70s, there was a, a, a momentary revival in the British folk scene with bands like Pentangle and Fairport Convention all sort of reintegrating uh, folk into modern music. And I can only speak personally, my opinion is is that this song is alluding a little bit towards that, sort of like hearkening back to, to English traditionalism and uh, and passing commentary on the, uh, the changing of the times. This was the post-war and the wheel of change was speeding up at this point. And I think it is a very, very insightful, from a lyrical perspective at least, mm-hmm. uh, document on how the British were looking at the, the changes in their own society at that time. Sure. Yeah. I, there will be dick jokes coming <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's, it's, it speaks to the fact that we're happy that there's someone British here who lived through this and went through these times because I... Probably, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> you were about when... 40 at this time, right? When this yeah, album yeah. <laughs> but I, I can probably safely speak for everyone that there was so much that went over our heads with this album in terms of just the different references, Knights of the Green Shield, Stamp, and Shout, Safeway, Tesco Operates, that we didn't even catch the first time around. And it wasn't until later that maybe we saw the album and heard about it that we're like, oh, there was so much going on that we didn't know about it. Just because being Americans or being Argentinians. <laughs> but did that, did that give you the kind of allure? You know, it was like, what is this? I mean, because I, I, there was a lot of American music which I, I, that I used to listen to. I have no idea what this, this thing called a gun is. You know? <laughs> and it's, uh, it, you know, it's in, no, in all seriousness, sort of like, you know, it was alluring, you know, to hear yeah. about sort of like some of the, 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 the things that they would be talking about, you know, yeah. you know especially the, the West Coast bands. So I'm, my question is to you is, was it interesting or was it just baffling? Uh, for me, it was interesting. Like, I had kind of probably gone through it a little bit younger before I listened to this music, learning about, like, watching Monty Python, where I knew that, and maybe it was even more obvious in comedy, when there are things that the crowd is laughing at that I'm just missing. And I just said, oh, that must be an English thing that I just didn't get uh, when I watched that as a 12-year-old or 13-year-old whenever I first discovered Monty Python. And so listening to Genesis, I was like, oh, there's probably, re- like, especially, you know, Citizens of Hope and Glory, you know, Unifon, these things, it was all Queen. I was like, oh, I didn't, I, I had no direct experience with this, but I was okay with that because it is kind of music from a different world at that point. Yes, but for me, obviously I had no clue what they were talking about. But then when I went to London for the first time in 1994, the first thing I was like, I need to go to Safeway and Tesco. (laughs) (laughs) I need to see these iconic places. Right. Um, Spend some pounds. Exactly, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, it just went over my head the first time I heard it too, like, like you guys. But I think even though it went over my head, this song clearly declared the theme of this entire album and it does it very well i mean there's these kind of it sounds like traditional proper guitar lines but they have a very dark sinister sound to Mm -hmm. them um as you were saying earlier tom about you don't know which way the song's going to go um maybe that's the way the country felt at the time so there is there's just there is a lot of um things happening lyrically musically in this song um this was one of my 
favorites when I first got it because um, I just like the energy. Yeah. This is the one track that really has the balls on it. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's, uh, you know, I think it's some of Hackett's best playing. Yeah. I actually prefer his guitar in this song over the further fifth solo. Uh, so if you want to uh, burn me at the stake no. over there, you can go right ahead. Uh, that just reminds me of one yeah. thing. It's it's nice to hear uh, Eddie Van Halen guesting on this with yeah. the tapping. Yeah. Because he invented tapping, he did. didn't he? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to say that uh, I wrote down here, I like the guitar solo here more than the Firth of Fifth one. Stacy, we... Oh my god! Oh my god! But, yeah. I so hope this is not going to become a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I, what I like to do with this track, and you probably do it with a lot of different Genesis tracks or music tracks, is go listen to this and say, I'm going to listen to the keyboards all the way through here and really listen to what that's doing. I'm going to listen to the guitar now on this listen. Really listen to the guitar all the way through because listen to the drums, what that's going on, because there are always little bits that jump out of you, but when you're listening to the keyboards in the opening part before it gets into the the piano that comes in, I'm like, that's there's some really cool arrangements in this track also that isn't it's all complementary to each other i think that there's there's bits throughout here i think steve's guitar solo everybody kind of focuses on the little tapping bit but that whole middle section that is this very understated guitar solo Mm -hmm. is it feels a lot more hackety to me than the first and fifth one does which i like but it's a different feel this is a lot of this is a guitarist solo. In There's here. a little menace in it. Yes, yeah. he's experimenting with things, with different sounds, and it's not the same all the way through it. of the same old further thistle <laughs> I suggest you check out the one in uh, Dancing with the Moonlit yes, Night <laughs> I really liked in the moment when Steve said it and also now kind of the Elgarian phrase that he used to describe this and it's only now that I realize I mean it actually has the line citizens of hope and glory in here which is again a direct Elgarian reference uh, and I thought the Elgarians were something of Star Trek. <laughs> I thought it was I, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, wait. So, yes. See? Not quite dick jokes, but we are. <laughs> so. <laughs> but the lyrics of this really, it's, it's again, it's so English. And for this American boy growing up in New Jersey in the 1980s, it was. It really was just this other world where I was able to kind of dive into this, and again, not know what it meant, 
but just to really reflect on the coolness of it. There and on Twitter, a couple of people asked about kind of the references in this uh, track to you know some of the different pieces of things here, and there there are websites that talk about all these references about the green shield and you know as we were saying Tesco and Safeway hobby horse hobby horses you know. Do you know, know what a hobby horse is? No. It's a rocking horse. Yeah, it's a rocking horse, yeah. <laughs> That's me, the non-English speaker. So right. For information about <laughs> yeah. that, that. So it's, it's, I don't know if, if it's worth cataloging everything here, but it is, it is interesting just for, for, for the Americans at the table, just how English this feels. The English people may have a very different kind of feel about that, and it, you know, but that this is how music connects to to me at least. It's for me. It's uh, all I can say is that this song has a very urban feel, okay. even though it has a very folky kind of sure. vibe about it. Certainly, the lyrics have a very urban feel. I I particularly like how, um, and we will talk about this a little bit later on the album, where some of the themes of this song come back. Yes. Later on during the album and right. in some of the other themes as well. Right. But uh, that's a very clever trick. And I don't think... did Have they ever attempted anything like that before? I mean, I know that they did on The Lamb, but prior to this album, had they ever done anything like that? Kind of echoing themes in yeah. different tracks. I think this is really the first kind of initiative where this happened okay. on this album. I mean, so, I, I genuinely don't yeah. know, so that hence the reason for me asking. I guess you really can't count it, but Supper's Ready, although it was just one track, right. I mean, that has themes from one minute in that are repeated 20 sure. minutes in, but right. as a part, as as opposed to different songs, I, don't, I think this might have been well, the first. Well, at some point here, it says, Paper Late. Right. Yes. Again, they were, they were thinking but, ahead. Yeah, they were thinking ahead. <laughs> actually, I can tell you, that was one of the things that, that did go on to become Paper Late, because he was actually singing that as a sound check right, over yeah. and over, that and that's story. how they got... They got some of the jamming. Yeah, the jamming kind of out of paper like doing that. From that. Yeah. And I liked on, I think it was the 78 tour, they actually did this entire, they did the full song. Yeah. Um, and I liked that, you know, Phil sang instead of, uh, where's the lyric, uh, with the twist of the world we go, he said, with the trick of the tale we go. Um, which again, you know, just a nice little change there. And I remember when I first heard that on a live tape, I kind of went back, I was like, is that the line in the original? And I looked and I was trying to listen and I was like, oh no, it's not. But that's cool that he switched it around a little bit that way. They got into a little bit of a mode between sort of this album and Trick of the Tale where they were doing a little bit of re-referencing yes. sort of like across. And I feel like those those two albums are very much like sister albums, twin albums that they, with the lamb kind of in the middle of that. The great being, big fat cooking. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a band from a different planet, I think, coming to do that. And, like, when we, when we talk about the lamb, we'll talk about how different that album is from the rest of Genesis's career. But I, there's much more of a direct line from this album to Trigger the Tail if you take the lamb out of there. I would agree with that. Cool. I think with that, we'll move on to the second track, a little ditty called I Know What I Like. Um, I Know What I Like was really um, a, a guitar riff that I had Phil used to play. And uh, the first year I presented it to the band, um, uh, uh, um, Mike thought it sounded too much like the Beatles, so we didn't do it. And then um, Phil and I were still doing it by the following year, and we recorded it and had lyrics on the top, and turned it into a song, and it became our first hit single. So. <laughs> There's always been an anthem. 
Okay, do I have this song to blame for every neo prog band or artist putting like sound effects into their songs? <laughs> like boom, boom, boom. Or the lawnmower? Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking when I when I was re-listening to the album and prep for the show. Uh, I've heard the song a billion times in a billion different versions, you know, right. live and otherwise. And um, I was just, I was really struck by the the lawnmower. And I was just wondering, have they done that something like that before? And was that something other bands at the time were kind of using, like real life sound effects? In, yeah, the Beatles in the did some sound effects here. Yeah, and there, that might know. very well be the um, yeah. uh, uh, sort of the Beatlesque influences. Is the, yeah. the use yeah. of sort of sound effects in this song? I, I mean, I don't know. So we can blame the Beatles instead of. Genesis for that. Yes. Okay. You can blame the Beatles for most everything in music. Pretty much. Pro and, <laughs> pro and con. So I'm glad that Steve brought up the Beatlesque aspect of this track. Because honestly, I've never quite felt that with this. You know, it's maybe just because I focus more on the live version of this song than the studio version. Mm-hmm. But even the studio version, to me, doesn't scream Beatlesque to me. You'll be yeah, amazed, though, how how songs can start and yeah. then evolve into something completely different. Right. And, and, of course, as writers, they have a unique perspective yes. on their own material compared to uh, the, us hairy arseholes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I always got the Beatle connection with the line, cuckoo to you. Like, I always thought that was a kind of a, a little nod oh, to the Beatles. Like, I'm the walrus. I'm the walrus. Cuckoo, oh, yeah. so yeah. cuckoo to you. So, cuckoo to you. And I always that. thought the line, <laughs> maybe it wasn't, but over the garden wall, one of their original bands was yeah, obviously right. the garden wall. So, so yeah. I thought that was another little reference to. Yeah. I think, though, again, it's a little bit like the Beatles is that, that when you become a famous band, anything becomes a reference yes. and all of a sudden yeah. people are reading stuff into it. I mean, it, you might very well be right yeah. um, because, as I said, we, they were in that self-referential yeah. mode at this point. And it wasn't that far in their pasts for that yeah. either. So I remember when I was in high school, I would write, talking about references in the lyrics, I would write in every blackboard in the school, I know what I like and I like what I know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Genesis in the proper font. And then like, yeah. she was expelled. That's how she ended up here. Right. <laughs> now this, I, I, I love this song. I love the informalness of it. Um, it's just very light. On this is a pretty heavy, dark album, I think, in many ways. Um, and uh, this bass line is my happy place. I do, <laughs> I do love the bass line. This like song. in the chorus part. Of oh, it, the whole, the whole track, all throughout. Um, it's, it's what I always zero in on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and I love the, uh, the, the, probably though my favorite aspect of the song is the double lead with Gabriel yes. and Collins. It just feels like you're, they're singing along in a pub somewhere to, to the track. And again, it adds to that informalness of it. Um, it doesn't sound overproduced or overdone. It, you know, it, it just feels natural. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, and it, as we all know, it came to be one of their highlights of their live act. So this was the single you're allowed to like. Yes. yes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this is a three-minute song that's yes. like, oh yeah, it was a hit single, but not that big of a hit. So it, it's, it's the good kind of single. Right. <laughs> yeah, this track is funny because in the album sometimes I would skip it because I love the li- the live versions. They have so much energy and connection to the audience and you know audience audience participation time. <laughs> yes. I think this was done. Except for the lamb, I think it was done on every tour since the selling tour, right? 
At least in um, some way, shape, or form? No, I, it wasn't on um, the Mama or Invisible Touch tours, but it was right. on the... I meant except for Mama dance. and... <laughs> <laughs> so, and... and so I'll, I'll give you seventy five percent for that. So that's a good that's a good one though. So but yeah, it, it was a live favorite, and it often was you know if not the encore, kind of the last song of the set, you know, pretty early on. Um, and I do think that this is one of the tracks that really came to life after Gabriel left the band, also because I think the live versions with Gabriel were very much like the album version. It wasn't really stretched out, and it got a little bit more stretched out on Trick of the Tail, and then Wind and Wuthering is really that arrangement that we've all come to know and love that was on Seconds Out, and that really turned into the you know, audience participation with Phil doing his dance and everything. But on the album version, I, like, I think there's cool percussion throughout this entire mm-hmm. track. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have pictured this as originating with the guitarist. You know, because it's not a huge guitar song, but you know, I think that goes to the strength of you know Steve's writing in certain ways. But the riff's a real earworm. Yeah, exactly. The it just cycles around and around in your head, um, and I do like that. On the reissue interviews, uh, Tony kind of talks about how the melody during the verses was Peter's, and then the melody during. The, the vocal melody during uh, the choruses was was Tony's. He wrote that. And Peter's very dismissive of, oh, yeah, I really like the verses, but the chorus doesn't do anything for me nowadays. I think he uh, spe- specifically said the chorus was boring yes, to him. Yeah. And then to- it comes to Tony saying, the chorus is great. <laughs> but that's a, but I think also, I think it is a great melody for a chorus. Uh, it because in your head. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it cycles around like that. And I think that's, you know, I think that's them egging each other a little bit, even after, you know, 30, 40 years, just kind of having fun with that. But it's it's a lot of fun. I enjoy this track and I enjoy the live. Ver- I enjoy the studio version. I think I like the live version even more. Another case of us being separated by a common language <clears throat> for us here. Wardrobe is just your collection of clothes. It's not the case where you hang your clothes. So for for listening to the song, it's like I know what I like in your wardrobe. Meant like I like this pair of pants. I like like this shirt. I I think it's because a wardrobe in England is something which stands alone in front of the wall. Right. Another thing I thought. It's what you hide in when you are sleeping with someone else's (laughs) wife, and (laughs) and the husband comes home. Or if you need to get to Narnia. Yeah. If you happen to have a line and a witch. Yeah. The other thing which I thought was an English reference was when he goes, me, I'm just a lawnmower. I actually meant he literally thought he was a lawnmower, like the mechanical machine that would cut oh, grass. Oh, the intricacies of verbs. I was like, wow. I thought that too. Wait, it's not that? These Brits are so deep. <laughs> no, he's the guy who pushes he's the lawnmower. He's the guy who pushes the lawnmower. During the Heath A's. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he thought I thought he was being all metaphorical and symbolical, like you know. He See, was I a thought that too. Wow, it's a profession, not the piece of equipment. But see, it's spelled like, see, if I was, if somebody was a mower of lawns, I would have a space between lawn and mower. 
If you're talking about a physical object that is a lawnmower, then it's one word. Ladies and gentlemen, talk amongst yourselves <laughs> while we have this conversation. <laughs> Let's consult with a grammarian right now. I'm also. sorry, but that's because that's why I thought of it. Because when I did get this album, this was I, this is another thing. Now it's all coming back to me. I remember I had the lyrics with this, and I was reading because I didn't understand what was being sung. Mm-hmm. So I'd read through the lyrics when um, I would listen to the songs. And when I see lawnmower as one word, I think of the actual, you know, mower that <laughs> cuts the grass. Sure. If you're a lawn mower, it's two, it's two different words. Moving on. <laughs> it's very on. interesting Perhaps. being married to this woman, ladies and gentlemen. Perhaps we're over-explaining. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let's let's start at the beginning. <laughs> This guy, he's a lawnmower. So wait, we're, at a, we're on a lawn. <laughs> That's right. It needs to be cut. It's one o'clock. <laughs> That's right. And, and it is time for lunch. <laughs> so actually on, on Twitter, uh, Derek Gosselink, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Gosling. Gosling. Yeah, Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling is a fan of ours. Um, he writes, how many Genesis fans schedule their lunch for one o'clock each day in homage to this track? Not this one. I'm strictly at half past 12, man. (laughs) There you go. Uh, I think all of us do in some way, shape, or form. Um, We are all nerds. I think with that, we are embarrassing ourselves and our audience. So we must move on to Firth of Fifth. Firth of Fifth, um, uh, Tony's, you know, uh, uh, I don't think Tony ever wrote anything finer than that, you know, musically. um, uh, Terrific melodies. Mm Great long thing, um, and I was able to um, steer the course of it um, with, you know, the most famous Genesis guitar solo. But it was his melody um, that has a slightly kind of Eric Satie-ish quality about it, in its pure form, just played on the piano, but with bendy notes and feedback and, and all that. Um, it's still a high point of live shows for me.
from view Like a cancer growth Is removed by skin Let it be revealed I think the piano introduction to this is beautiful. I think it's one of the best recorded pianos on album I have ever heard. It just feels so right to me. It's what I compare all other pianos to. How many times did he try to attempt to play this live before he decided, okay, that's enough, I'm not going to do this? This is Tony Banks I'm talking about. On the boots that I have, there's actually kind of a whole leg of the tour where he does it. But it's on that kind of... Which tour are we talking about? Selling England tour. Okay. It was only ever done by Tony on the Selling England yeah, I was tour. Yeah, say, just the one. Yeah, and there were a bunch of them. There's some people who say, like, oh, he tried it once and it didn't work or whatever. And he actually did it a, a, a bunch of times. Um, but I think that it was... The equipment wasn't great for it back in the day. So, right. I mean, he plays the basic same part later on in the song, so it's not like it's that so hard to play. It's just that... You know, when you're naked on stage doing it, it's probably yeah. a little bit rough when the piano goes wrong, whatever you're playing. Whatever I think he was using was. a pianette at this point. Yeah, whichever it was. But did he really play naked on stage? Yes, he did. <laughs> so Peter made him do it. So <laughs> it was another long uh, issue between Peter and Tony that he would have to play naked. I so. think it was a, uh, of course, a piece by Tony Banks, which was rejected, I think, the year before yes. by the was band. Really? Like, yes. They were, no, this is not good, blah, 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 let's not use it, and they finally used it for Fruit of the Fruit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. a, kind of hard to believe, but this is a masterpiece, wow. right. let's say. There, there, it's funny, because Steve talked about that this riff for I Know What I Like he had had for a while, and, you know, he and Phil would just, he'd, I remember in an interview, maybe not on ours, but he said he just, he'd like, we'd just jam on this for hours like stupid people. <laughs> and <laughs> and then but I know Tony talked about that at least a version of Firth of Fifth was kind of presented during the Foxtrot sessions, and it wasn't complete, or people didn't get into it, and I think this was, you know, all material on deck, so let's make it work. I like how it's a good example of if you're a band... You just try things. It might not sound good. It might sound great. I remember Tony saying that at one point they took the melody he had and they said, oh, let's just throw everything at it. Mellotron, everything, King yeah. Crimson style, whatever. And that became the big part of the song. They're yeah. like, this actually sounds pretty good. Yeah. I think it was kind of almost a joke when they first did it. And then it was like, no, this really kind of works. So it's it's a lot of fun. And that's, again, in bands, I think sometimes you get the right thing just by goofing around. And this was something that, you know, ended up being one of the big guitar moments for Steve in this this track. To me, this song is the two, like, Banks and Hackett, like, all the way. There's some very iconic lead work going on Mm -hmm. from both of them. Um, And I think overall in this album, this is the the best playing they're doing together. Mm -hmm. This is the best Hackett-Banks combination. They're complimenting each other. They both have very strong leads mm-hmm. and in a lot of the tracks, um, and they're just shining, yes. the two of them. It's, it's fantastic. Um, the only other thing I wrote down about the song was the lyrics are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah, are you talking about? This is, this is the best use of the phrase cancer growth in any song <laughs> I've ever heard. Well, here's the thing. Uh, I, from what I, I've read on, on Wikipedia, uh, Peter Gabriel claims it took, took him two days to write the lyrics for all of the songs on this album. He didn't write all the side. Well, for his lyrics, lyrics yeah, I'm saying. Sure. It took him two days. Was this one of his? No, this is all Tony, the music Tony, and lyrics. Tony, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I wrote, 
don't know if I'm mispronouncing this, probably I am. Undinal songs. Undinal songs, whatever. What is undinal? Is it something? Is it something or is it made up or it's it probably a little bo- bit of both. <laughs> I, I like the lyrics of this song. I just I think they fit the music really well. It's a small island just off Wales. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Simon. And I and and I just I, I like the how it goes together. Are the lyrics the best? Do they do they give a message of any type? No, not really. At least not that I can figure out. But it just is it, the delivery and the sound of them is suitably epic for this music. Right. I agree. But the, the, it's lyrics like this where you get the the whole Prague is pretentious right. <laughs> label. I'm sorry, but I feel like you know, and and it's interesting. You see, you have a lot of the lyrics here are very you know. Um, Kind of the airy fairy. Right. Um, the first verse is great, though. The path is clear, yeah. though no eyes can see. The course laid down long before, and so with gods and men, the sheep remain inside their pen, though many times they've seen the way to leave. Nobody talks like that. <laughs> it's, it's a song. You're, you're not looking for a conversation. No, in I a know. Song. No, it's just, hey, it's just yeah. me, my opinion. No, I, so this song, it's uh, musically, I think, is brilliant, uh, but lyrically, mm-hmm. it's just. Um, it, it, it does take away from it. I wrote something about best flute solo. I think there's no flute in this song. <laughs> no, there is. There's, You're right. Yeah, there is. No, there is this flute sound. Yeah. But it's a flute or is it a it's no, a flute. No, it's actually, or... it, later on it was done by Tony on keyboards You're after right, Pete yeah. left. But anyway. for this, on the recorded <laughs> version in live, the first kind of iteration of the, yeah. of the melody in the, in the middle section is Pete on flute with right, that. Right. Can I just I uh, take this slightly off? Tack, but related to your question, which is, no one really speaks that much about his flute playing, right, really. Sure. You know, when you think of flutes in the seventies, you're thinking of uh, Ian Anderson, right. you know, or or, uh, or Focus, Moody Blues. Moody Blues. Yeah. But no one really sort of like gives. And you know, okay, it, it maybe wasn't the most technical right. flute playing in the world but it was great instrumentation at exactly the right moment yeah up until the song it's always it, it was used as kind of a flourish or an embellishment and yeah. this is he has a true like flute solo in yeah. Firth or fifth and it like to Ali's point it works yeah. um in fact when i hear the live versions with the with the keyboard doing mm-hmm. it it doesn't work for me but i am a flute player so i'm partial <laughs> but i'm the biased but still i yeah, I, well, I we have to get it. your version of this solo. Soon. No, you don't. You have to play for us. No, <laughs> it'll be a bonus I, track. No, I care about people who have ears oh, and who okay. can hear. I don't. I think you know. I love the middle instrumental bit. You know, the with you know Phil, Mike, and Tony doing their crazy bit with the melody from the piano intro and the melody on the flute and the melody that comes during Steve's solo. But there's also the da da da, like leading up to that, the piano yeah, part. Yeah, yeah. Dee, 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 that oh. is just. I, I almost I could listen to a loop of that forever because that to me is just one of those little perfect pieces of 20 seconds of music that just is a great transition that other bands would make a whole song out of that part. And back in my day, back in my day when I pretended to be a musician, I remember one of the guys who I was in a band with was always like, oh, you know, we have to take an idea and just ride that idea forever. And I was like, no, you can just use an idea just briefly, and that's okay. And I always thought that was maybe Genesis kind of speaking to me with kind of how there were little bits that were in a song that would never reappear. And that really speaks to, and and this is a particularly uh, good example of 
the density of arrangement that goes on in Genesis songs. Um, and and maybe you could, there's a case to be made uh, of Selling England being possibly the most intricate album of them all. When you think about it from an arrangement point of view, there are so many ideas pushed into this one album, which, as you say, many bands maybe would have made three or four albums yeah. out of. This track is definitely, you know, one of those songs that the crowd goes nuts for during the Hackett shows. I always think, you know, if, if he were to drop it from the set, I wouldn't miss it. But when it's when he plays it, I'm happy to hear it. Like, if, if he decided to play something else in place of Firth of Fifth, I'd be like, that's fine. But when he, once he plays it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I do like hearing this track live. I think as a fan, it's one of those must-see moments in your lifetime yeah, as a sure. fan where you have to see Hackett play yeah, the, at least the solo from the Firth of Fifth. And, and I think it's yeah. it speaks a lot to Tony that he allowed that solo in that song to go on for as long as it did. Because, I mean, Steve takes, takes control of the middle of that song. Right. I mean, he just... It, it makes almost makes it his own song, even though he does say it was Tony's melody, right, yeah. where it's something... The first time I met Steve back in 97, mm. I just very briefly signed my selling England, I shook his hand, and the rest of the day I was like, I shook the hand that played Firth of Fifth. <laughs> like, it's got such right. a legend and a lore in, in his in his way. And, and whenever I speak about Tony and Mike, I feel like David St. Hubbins talking about Nigel and Janine. It's like, of course... Tony and Steve, they're so similar in so many ways. It's not that they dislike each other. There's great love between them. It's just this connection which isn't there. <laughs> it's just, I'm, I'm glad they were able to kind of merge to create one of like yeah. probably the most perfect Genesis songs other than the lyrics. And it sounds like from what Steve's saying that he really helped with the arrangement of this also. And I think that, again, that's the role in a band that if somebody comes up with material you can kind of be the person to say, oh, let's link these bits together. Because I think in chapter and verse, it's talked about how this was really like three separate bits of Tony's that initially might have been three separate songs, but then Mike was like, Mike didn't really like any of them, so he was like, I'll just throw them all into one track. And so it's it, that's how the magic happens a lot of times. Actually, somebody wrote, uh, Robert wrote on Twitter asking about if this sounded like that Steve was channeling uh, Carlos Santana for the Firth of Fist solo. I can hear it maybe in the tone a little bit, but I, I, it doesn't jump out and scream Santana to me. I don't know if it does for anybody else. I, I, I agree with with you about the tone. It, there is that, that sort of like compressed tone yeah. that, that you have. But I think a lot of guitarists at, at the time were sort of were pursuing similar holy grails, I suppose is the best way to describe it. Yeah. But it's not an unreasonable observation to make. And, yeah. and it's like everybody. You always pick up something individual and unique because of your own perspective on the song. Right. And I'm just not that aware of Santana's catalog. Neither am other I. Than, so, yeah, maybe I'm other not... than the radio stuff you hear from back exactly, in the 70s yeah. and, and a bit later on from there. So uh, so that's good. They both wore satin flares around I'm about sure. the same time. <laughs> I'm sure they had a lot of uh, fashion choices in, in common in the <laughs> 70s. I think we're going to move on to More Fool Me. More Fool Me. Again, you know, Phil... Heading towards love songs, in right. a way. Were you on that at all? No, that, okay. that, that's really the two of them. That's Mike and, and, right. and Phil. Okay. And, um, and in a way, it sort of um, pointed the way forward for um, you know, the more perplexed love songs that, that mm. Phil um, became known for. You know, it's, it's not a quantum leap to get from that to um, you know, where he was at on, right. on, um, 
on face value and sure. for many more things you know he became you know so adept at, at being able to display his feelings Genesis is one and only uh, excursion into death metal. <laughs> <laughs> it's Genesis's version of death metal. I yes. think, so. Phil almost did this with a growl the whole song. Yeah. <laughs> Here am I. A while away the morning. I see a new cover version starting up. So. Yeah, but so. it's actually the opposite because right. I was like, oh, maybe Collins hadn't hit puberty by seven. Years. <laughs> <laughs> I think he gets up there. It's very, very high. It's, I, I really like this song. I know a lot of Genesis fans are, are like, oh, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's it's folky. It's not quite, you know, it's not a full band thing. It we're really Genesis is. fans. We're screwed up. I know. People yeah. like to complain about stuff. But I, I really like this as a song. Brian Biban, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, on Twitter asked if uh, More Fool Me was written specifically for Phil to sing. That answers that question. Had, uh, Steve was able to answer that. And I know that I read in maybe Armando Gallo's book that um, basically Mike and Phil wrote this song on the steps of Island Records or something like that really? when they were doing the, or maybe Island Studios, wherever they recorded this. And it was very much something that the two of them came up with and said, oh, we're going to record this. And I didn't think that Steve was on this track at all, but I was glad to ask, be able to ask him if he was just to confirm no I was going to say that it's, it's a very Mike Phil song yeah. which I like it's yeah. a love ballad or whatever but I like I like it and I even used to play it on guitar yes oh. <laughs> that, I see the cover version with Ellie playing there guitar and Tom doing not? death growl <laughs> vocals and I'll do the flute I mean, yeah. we, we, we're going to totally I'll do my juice hop I see <laughs> I, I see, cu- I see a bonus band. track on the Valdez album yes. so <laughs> <laughs> Your opening band. Yeah, we're right here. We got it. That was a good thing when he confirmed there was just the two of them because I'm listening to him like, Peter's not even doing backing vocals. It's just, it sounds just Phil doing double tracking. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of nice where they kind of let the two of them just go. And and I guess when they did perform at the Odd Times live, Phil would just come out as he referenced in his painter's outfit, painter's overalls. (laughs) And it was just, would just be him and Mike on stage, right? I mean, maybe Peter sang along to that because it sounds like there's a little bit of backing vocals for that. I mean, unless Mike was singing that, but, you know, Mike was a decent backing vocalist. 
stress backing. And um, <laughs> sorry, Mike. Yeah, sorry. Anybody who doesn't believe me, listen to what you're um, uh, acting very, very strange. strange. Oh, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> I never, like that album. Never gonna stop. I, I like the songs. Well, when we talk about that at some point, we will have fun. As long um, as he sings tenor. Yes. Ten or twelve miles away. That's <laughs> <amazing>. <laughs> oh, there we go. So I, I do think, like Steve said, this is the beginning of Phil's kind of romantic songs, Down on His Luck. You know, it's it's a sad song. More fool me for believing whatever this situation was and as the narrator of this song. You'd be the one who's laughing, except when things weren't going your way. So sad. Poor Phil, exactly. Well, it's just, it's just the one song which I do, I do love it, and I feel like it's a great, serious love song with Phil and Mike together, yep. but it just seems out of place on the album because every other song has a story to it, odd characters, making some statement on the, the the British scene at the time, and then you have this one standout, which is a strictly a love song, and then it goes back to what well, you don't think us British can't get our hearts broken. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I, they don't sing about it. I, but I think it's a nice little kind of break from everything else on the album because of that. It's a palate cleanser. Um, yeah. This is this is the track that almost made you return the album, right? <laughs> <laughs> it touched your soul too closely. It made me think of that girl in seventh grade who wouldn't go out with me. <laughs> I was the fool. Oh. <laughs> the other thing about the lyric, which, as we talked about before, how lyrics can change as you age, I think probably listening as a 15-year-old, mm-hmm. I actually thought that Phil's last line was, optimistic yes i'm sure it will work out all right and now looking back having had experiences i know that he's just rationalizing it. he knows it's not he's just telling himself that it is but deep down he knows it's not going to work out right all right um with that let's move on to the battle of epping forest uh, battle of epping forest well um in a way it's a kind of comedy um and it's 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 pastiche and it's what again it's one of those Genesis songs that I think its nearest relation might be Get Em Out by Friday. Um, something very English, very British, very tongue-in-cheek, and uh, and and Pete's depiction of a of a of, a, um, of an English vicar or churchman is absolutely hysterical. First time I heard it, I thought he absolutely saved the song <laughs> with that it, that level right. of irreverence and right. observation. Oh, the 
began when I went on a tour hoping to find some furniture Followed a sign saying beautiful chest led to a lady who showed me her best She was taken by surprise when I quickly closed my eyes So she rang the bell and quick as hell Bob Finnall came out on his job to see what the trouble was and hard to please. Oh, Perhaps so. If it's not too late, we could interest you in our old-fashioned Staffordshire plant. Oh, no, not me. I'm a man of repute. But the devil caught hold of my soul and a voice called out, Shoot! So big. It's all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Tabletop table after it, dark. It's funny, yes. isn't it? Yes. That this is Genesis's mad uncle, isn't it? It's yes. the one that everybody knows but doesn't talk about. It's it, well because it only lived during that first tour um, during the Selling England tour. It was never it was never played after that. I think the it was one of these ones that was real kind of headbutting within the band because Peter just had so many lyrics over it that the rest of the band was like you know this they it was great musically it was very busy musically and then it was very busy lyrically yeah. so it was just it's an crazy. incredibly dense song yeah. isn't it it's difficult very dense. to sing like I, when I was re-listening to it in prep for this podcast I think finally towards the end there's a little bit of just music without lyrics I'm yeah. like Okay, you know, no, I, I, there isn't there isn't much room to breathe in here to take a break. It's it's from the go. Well, you do get that little bit with the marching, the dress, the snare drum at the beginning. Yeah. But other than that, it it's mm-hmm. off to the races and doesn't stop till there's da 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 yeah. at the end. That's yeah. like the first time you actually get a break. It's three pages of <laughs> I know of liner notes. Well, the music is going crazy, and I'm like, "Where's the one in this song?" It's like it's like, and it's funny because it it has a real, to my mind, a real set rhythm to it. But damned if I can figure it out, yeah. you know. It's just one of these tracks that, you know, the band I will say complained about Peter's lyric on top of this. But what type of lyric did they expect this song to have? You can't just have like a la di dotty something on top of this. You, I think you, it has the lyric it needs, which is just gonna make it even more busy. I mean, it's it is a song about a battle, so yeah. I can kind of see where like the the lyrics are just coming at you. The, yeah. you know, the battle is out of control, rival gangs. So it is kind of in your face, but yeah, it does go on for a while. But even Pete admits. That it was a little bit too busy because I think one of the interviews he was like, "Yeah, it might have had a little bit too much, too, much, too many lyrics." I will in say, in its defence, yeah. there are parts of it which are very, very funny. Yes, oh, the I Reverend yes. part of it is fabulous. Yeah. So yeah, I think Steve's talked about the irreverence of the vicar bit, and you know, just having this sense of fun about it and sense of humour about itself. <laughs> <laughs> and a sense of humor about Dora. Dora wants to say something. I think she wants to participate. That, that, that is Dora's closest signal ever, water. saying, "I need. I am thirsty, and I should be drinking." That's what she does. So she has metal bowls, and that's how she tells metal, us metal she needs bowls. Get your mind out of the gutter, Roche. Anyway, yeah, she she'll she'll nose at her yes, bowl. That's awesome. 
when she's thirsty. Yes. She was nosing in my balls before. <laughs> hey. Yeah, that hey, was oh. that was Dora. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Hey. oh. <laughs> Get him out on Saturday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That is, uh, that is a bigger laugh than that deserved. But I'm happy that he's <laughs> laughing at it. So, <laughs> so Stacy. Yes. You had mentioned, much like Steve did, that this reminded you of... Get him out by Friday. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I got it right. Yes, yeah. then you got your Which own is observation. Which so surprising. <laughs> um, and Simon said, Harold the Barrel. And yes. yes it, 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 it does kind of have that... That feel where they are um, taking on a character. Well, Gabriel's taking on a character and, you know, really telling a story from another person's uh, A mockumentary. Voice. A mockumentary. <laughs> and there's sort of accelerated pace. Yes. And they're singing. all busy songs. So they're yeah. fast songs in general. But to that point, so yeah, we were saying it's very busy, it's fast, it's crowded, it's, mm-hmm. it's dense, it's complex. But I think, you know, if... In this album, you know, songs like Firth, A Fifth, and Cinema Show, that shows their growth as songwriters. And this mm-hmm. track, to me, shows how much they've grown as players. Yes. Because their technique is just phenomenal. I mean, you know, you were saying you listen to a, a track and you, you just listen for the keyboard part yes. or the bass line. And I, I do that a lot. And with this song, it's, you know, when you do kind of hone in when you can piece out all the different layers that they've yeah. they've thrown in here, it is really well arranged. It's well arranged in that you know the their playing is just you know really uh, leaps and bounds over I think what they've done on Foxtrot um, and Nursery Crime. And with um, the introduction of some of those keyboard kind of more synthesizer sounds, yeah. and it's Tony's little line that's like. Yeah. Which I really like. There's yeah, little there's and little bits throughout this that yeah. are fantastic. And Hackett's doing some really weird shit yeah. in this song too. Like, you know, there's like this the plucking he's mm-hmm. doing. Oh, yeah, this sounds like a yeah. chicken squaw yeah. going yeah. on at some yeah. point. Yeah. You know, it it again they're they're playing really well here. I this, think this reminds me also of the, the tracks that were mentioned already, but also the Colony of Slipperman. To me, is a very it's a less mm-hmm. busy track. But it, to me, it has the same feel to it that has, it's telling a really cons- consistent story with it. And, you know, it, some of Hackett's, you mentioned Hackett's guitar work in it, reminded me of that itself. So, yeah, I, I like this song, but it would have been a beast to play, I'm sure. Yeah. Especially to sing it. Yes. The only time I, I've ever seen this played live was the musical box. Right. And and while this is far from being my favourite Genesis uh, song, I much I appreciated it much more having seen it played live. Sure, it it is one of those tracks where the live version is a lot better because you see Peter taking on all these characters: the Reverend, mm-hmm. you know, the the guy with the, at the beginning doing the march yes. proper, mm-hmm. and you know, doing a little jaunt on stage like that. This this had to have been. A large undertaking for him to do live. I mean, I would have been—I'm exhausted just watching him do it. <laughs> but for him to do it, it's like he's up there being carrot top, you know, doing all these different disguises and you know, yeah, right? turning the the necktie around. So now yeah. he's the Reverend, but then he turns around, he's another character. Mm-hmm. Like you can see why the band, kind of knowing that this had a lot of a lot of lyrics, kind of dropped it. Like Peter was the one 
to push it and right. to give it life. But when he was gone, they were probably very. Yeah. They, Phil, Phil they didn't was not going to take this on. <laughs> they didn't miss playing this <laughs> live. No. No. There's a lot of theater in this, even yeah. on record. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you just listen to lots of different voices that he's doing. I love this song. It's it's again, it's busy, it's crazy. I love it. And when you read the lyrics, which I did to prepare for this podcast, I found all sorts of uh, of characters. And there is this thing, the Barking Slugs, which I'm not sure could be a name of a pub or name or a name <laughs> for a band, maybe. Right. Uh, Genesis Tribute Band, no, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> we are Genesis Tribute That's right, the Barking <laughs> right, Slugs, yeah. that works out. Then the Black Cap Barons, you yeah. know, there are a lot of references, funny references. You the can gang have a lot of names fun. there. Yeah. Somebody on Twitter did point out that this is one of these tracks for the American listeners out there that... You know, David Finn talked about that it took it took him years to dig the Battle of Epping Forest because the LP had no lyric sheet. Aww. And so this is one, I think, like Get Him Out by Friday, like Harold the Barrel, that becomes a lot more clear for the Americans when you kind of realize that there's a bunch of different characters in here that you don't necessarily know just by listening to the track. And so it's it's great. I think that there's... It's a real tour de force from Gabriel. It's a real tour de force instrumentally from everybody else i don't think there's one single standout of them all i think it's one of these things that the ensemble itself is just incredible listening to them that it was like oh that that this is the piece of music we came up with to do this like i wonder who wrote this musically because i think it would this is one of these tracks where i'm like it just had to have come out of jamming I can't imagine somebody sitting at home going, I got this great part. <laughs> and I'll get it. Everybody else, I'll teach it to them and they'll play it. Like, I would think they just... Wait, how's it go again? <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't that Beaker from the Muppets? So that's... Uh, so yeah, I just don't... don't I, I, I think this is an amazing song. I, Does it get talked about much by the band? Not really. I mean, it talked about it being one of the early breaking points with Peter, I think, because he sang over so much that we thought was going to be instrumental, mm-hmm. meaning maybe the entire song. Um, because, again, what what other lyrics could have gone with this? You know? Yeah, exactly. It would have had to be <laughs> almost just... Like, if they ever played this post-Gabriel, it would have just been instrumental or part of a medley or something with that. But, you know, you know, I, I could see them doing this instrumentally as part of like that, you know, middle after in the cage. Let's throw in a bit of this. But it's still like, been crazy. And so. you wonder what was in their mind supposed to be instrumental. Mm. Like there's the great musical section I love when he starts with In With The Left Hook. In With The Left Hook is the best little green butcher. But he's counted on the right by mixed chain gang fights. so good yeah. you're like wondering like well what would have that sounded like without yeah. lyrics thrown on top of it right but it, it, it is kind of a precursor to the lamb where most of them did a lot of the writing the music 
and then Peter would come on and throw lyrics here and there, and they'd be like, "That was not supposed to be a lyrical part." Right, yeah, right. And he was like, mm, "It is now." That's <laughs> <laughs> <Guess> what. <laughs> Turn my vocals up in the mixing board here. So, but yeah, I think this is a great. It's it's a great track. It's exhausting. It's crazy. It's fun. You know, it's it's, it's worth of, visiting every now and again. Yeah, yes. exactly. I, I don't know if I'd want every song on an album to have this level of intricacy and busyness to it. I'd listen to Gentle Giant for that if I wanted to. Exactly. Um, gonna, yeah, well, it's true. I, I, yeah, I did have that Giant written down. <laughs> In your face, Gentle Giant. <laughs> no, but yeah, it, that's, and some, and you know, like, I don't know. What's that? What's that style? Prague, Canterbury, where it's yeah, just very layered yeah, and busy. Right. I mean, it doesn't. This doesn't sound like Canterbury. Can but... I just say that uh, we will be uh, meeting with uh, Tabletop Gentle Giant in the parking lot behind uh, the Wegmans <laughs> yes. later on this week, and we'll write a ten-minute song about this. Yeah, about the rumble. Uh, we'll have. We're going to fight over the East End protection rights. <laughs> I was going to say. That. I got to it faster. Because <laughs> oh, we we're both nerds. So let's move on now. Please. <laughs> oh, <laughs> to, that, that, was, that, that was that was such an ordeal. Yeah. Yeah. After the ordeal, next. After the ordeal was really something of mine, which started out as an as a um, it was going to be a rock thing, and it worked so much better as an acoustic thing. So I gave way on that. Steve said this is uh, better as an acoustic bit. How is it for all of us? So, did I hear right that this was originally written as like a a rock piece, like electric, and then they, that's interesting. And there's a bootleg tape out there that is of the electric version. So it's, it sounds fine. It sounds like a sped up version of the the melody Mm -hmm. from the acoustic bit played electrically with Phil, with a full band arrangement. Um, but it does, it sounds, it is better as an acoustic bit, but I, I find the kind of verse of the acoustic bit kind of dull. Yeah, me too. I, I like it. I don't, I don't love it. Right. I don't think it's horrible or anything. I mean, this guitar solo is beautiful, but it's, it's a palate cleanser. Yeah. I mean, I want it so badly to be one of their like hidden gems or yeah. one of their underrated tracks, but it's just, it's yeah. not. It was nice to hear Steve <laughs> yeah. do it on his last tour from a year or two ago. And sure, yeah. it wasn't, but it also wasn't, oh, thank God they played this. It was just, oh, this is nice to hear. Mm-hmm. It's a nice little track from, I remember, I think in Gallo's book, it's basically the front part is Steve and then the kind of 
electric solo at the end is Steve and Mike wrote that part. And Tony always says that it's one of his least favorite things because in Gallo's book again, he says that his playing is horrible on it. So that's really why he dislikes it. That his own playing is horrible. His own playing, yes. His own piano playing on there. And listening to it, it's it's busy, but it's not bad. It's It fits the music, actually, I think. And some fans get worked up about, oh, you know, Tony, why does Tony hate this so much? It's like, well, because he recorded it. You know, he's allowed to dislike things. Just like Steve is allowed to dislike things, or Peter, Phil, or Mike. Or us. Or us. I mean, do you think that after the ordeal was original title, or that it was, <laughs> that it was meant to be like after the ordeal of the battle because that's the way I always yeah. started like you have the big battle of the forest and then it's kind of like a, a coda after the ordeal like the I, dust is settled that fits now for me. I'll give you that one alright yeah, yeah, yeah. you're getting it. lots from Mike I today I am give me credit here so. Mike's being very magnanimous yeah. he's yes, being very so. generous this is right. nice very Algarian I love it oh. <laughs> I, I think no I, I think that that feels right to me and so as a fan, I will say, yeah, that's a good, that's a good interpretation. We shall let you stay at the tables. <laughs> I think I'm going to sell this album back. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have 30 years yeah. it's too long. Do they still buy back CDs? Is that <laughs> Some places do, I'm sure. But um, Well, you can send it back to your Columbia house, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's nice, but it's... It, I know that this was one of those things. Again, I think Tony in an interview said we none of us agreed on what to put the, put on the album, so we put everything on the album that we had. And I think you know this is one of those ones. I think even Phil in those reissue interviews when he's going through the album, he's like, after their deal, don't remember it. It's like which he's barely on it, honestly. But it, but he's just he, he's kind of dismissive of just like yeah, it's not a standout. Anymore. And it's not. It's so, not. so we should it's, probably move on yeah. to the next track. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a much better track. And a much Dennis. bigger track. <laughs> better track. It's a much better track. And it's called The Cinema Show. Cinema Show? I think, you know, announcing it live and doing it and having sort of dissected the song um, uh, in order to make it playable, mm-hmm. um, it's sweeter with the passing of time, I think. I think it's very beautiful. At the time, I thought, oh, it's another typical Genesis song. Mm-hmm. But I, I revised my opinion about that, and I think it's very beautiful. Sped up guitars, mm-hmm. you know, a whole ton of them chiming away, and we get somewhere near it live with, with, um, with um, the chimers on stage. Mm-hmm.
It's interesting that Steve should say that, how it's kind of become better in his mind over years, especially when he, they break it down in order to play it live, because I've be, got a bigger appreciation for the song. I know I've always liked it, except for the brief time when I thought about selling this album. <laughs> but, Never going to let you forget that. <laughs> no. But there is a, a, a fantastic version by uh, a duo called the Genesis Piano Project, which oh, features sure. our friend Adam, and they play this song, and you... The, the way that they treat the beginning, you can tell that they took time and broke down which of them is going to play this part, which is going to play that part. And it's just... Because it's two pianos. It's two pianos, and it's just so lovely and such airy and so, with such reverence that they play with it that it makes you go back to the actual version, album version and and look at the brilliance of this, of this beginning of, of mm-hmm. Mike and Steve's opening guitar parts and Phil's, uh, sorry, Steve, uh, Peter's lyrics and just, mm-hmm. the, just the melody. And I think Tony's probably on guitar in this, too. Probably, probably yeah. three yeah. of them doing this. And just how good a song this is. Yeah, it's great. I think that, you know, this has a lot of air to it. It's the arrangement of it and just the sound of it. The You know, after the introduction, there's that little bit that goes, before the low uh, vocal start of, it always feels like going home to me. It's like oh we're we're on this trip and it's moving forward very nicely. Yeah. And it's very effortless, you know, yeah. such a contrast right. to a um, battle. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right, so. you know, it's a it's a big exhale. Yeah. Um, Which is maybe why Steve said it, it. He thought of it as a typical Genesis song. Right. Which, you know, I'd like to explore with him a bit more what he thinks of as a typical Genesis song. I mean, I I think you know at, up until that point, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about the albums they did before this one mm-hmm. i could see where he makes that connection because yeah. it, it has you know kind of the the same structure as um maybe not like musical box but i'm thinking you know fountain of 
And, uh, you know, also on Foxtrot, you know, maybe like Can Utility, yeah. where it's it's kind of a sweeping, yeah. romantic, um, you know, feel to it, which, you know, Cinema Show definitely, mm-hmm. you know, harkens to that. Yeah, I love Cinema Show. But yes, you say, Stacey, it's very organic, it's very relaxing, and, you know, everything fits well together, and you kind of relax listening to it. It's a beautiful piece. Until the keyboard solo. (laughs) And then it gets into this manic part. Although I wouldn't say it's manic, but it's... I did say it's manic. I'll take it back and say it's not quite manic. (laughs) But it's, it's a very different part than the first part of this track. And I love it. I love both parts of this. And I wrote down, actually, if... uh, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes from um, Trust Me Stills and Nash. If that can be kind of a radio hit, I was like, why can't this be a radio hit? You know, it's it's funny what ends up getting played on the radio. And, you know, even back Because in the day. voices beats playing every day yeah. of the week. Yeah. So, and, and I think that both, you know, Peter and Phil sang this beautifully in, in their different ways. Uh, and I just think arrangement-wise, like Stacy said before, it was effortless, and I bet it was a lot of effort to make it sound oh, effortless. Sure, you know, sure. no, and that's I think that's the beauty of it is that it does sound like well, how else could this have been? And probably a lot of different ways, but this works. This works in a lot of it works on all levels for me. And this is actually uh, based on the Wasteland by T. S. Yes. Eliot, if I remember correctly. Yep. Yep. Father Tiresias is, yeah. is, a, is a character from that poem also. I was asked that question in an interview and I got it completely wrong and I said it was to do with Chaucer. Oh. <laughs> Wait, was it an interview for... It was for a magazine. Right? Yes. So every time you hear that line, you're like, oh, that interview. <laughs> <laughs> it is a really beautiful uh, song, in, it's, yeah. especially in how it's paced mm-hmm. and how it gathers momentum as the song mm-hmm. progresses. And I think it's a, a testament to the strength of this song. That middle section, that instrumental section, pretty much featured uh, for the rest of the tours yeah. that they ever played. If you could sit them down in a room, I think they'd all probably stick up their hands and say, yeah, we're proud of this one. Somebody mentioned on, on Twitter, uh, David Finn, who said the Dancing with the Moonlit Night was originally meant to link directly to Cinema Show, which I had never heard before. I don't know if that's true or not but uh, I don't know if anybody around the tabletop had heard that. I might have to ask Mr. Finn about where that came from. There is something on the wiki page about this album, how the end, the twinkling guitars at the end of Dancing was meant to kind of segue into the opening guitars of Cinema Show. But then it would have been 20 minutes and they didn't want to be compared to Cinema Show. Uh I'm sorry, to Supper's Ready. Which, again, I don't know what the source of that Hmm. is. Because Wikipedia is the only place I've read that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Maybe think, David uh, Finn wrote that. Thank you, David, for. When oh, actually, I read that. I read that on WikiLeaks. Oh, <laughs> it was in the CIA papers. Yes. So. This song was a, a big turning point in my uh, fandom of the band, um, specifically minute four twenty nine. No, <laughs> sorry, four thirty nine to four forty two. Which is? There's three seconds there. I'm not going to sing it, but you go to your, your album player of your choosing and go four minutes and 39 seconds in. You know what it is, I know don't it you? Is. I, 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 I know what it is, but with the magic of editing, click your fingers. Click. Click. 
it was exactly what I guessed. Oh. Yes. So no, t- what but, did you think? So, Stacy, what was it? You know what? It, it just it that those three seconds turned me into somebody who really likes this music. Into I'm the biggest fan girl wow, who ever okay. lived, because it just totally took me by surprise, and it totally works. And I can't really describe it any more than that. But that was the hook that pretty much dragged me to this table, <laughs> <laughs> if you will. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, and I still kind of get a little kick out of, okay. you know, hearing three it. Three seconds. Just three, those part. three seconds. It does something to your lady balls, right? <laughs> it kind of gives them a little tickle. Yeah. <laughs> I like the na 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 that, that whole section How does that go again? na 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 One more time. na na I I just enjoy that part. I don't know if you enjoyed that part listening to it, but oh no, uh, I'll I'll edit it into something very special. (laughs) I enjoyed you singing that, Mike, very much. I try, so my my voice is eh, but but I it's again you know Gabriel and Gabriel and Phil doing that bit there. It's just, it's really beautiful. So. Oh yeah, their voices together are yes. are yeah. wonderful, Perfect. and and in, yeah, that 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 passage is is great. That was something. Um, hearing this song live when they would do the full song, mm-hmm. um, you know, I always missed yes. after Gabriel left, you know. But yeah, because it, it it is, you know, the, it's very unique. Right. Unfortunately, like a a heavy smoker after a meal. I always want this to have afterglow after it. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> right. that. Yeah, and and when I listen to it on on the album, it, when it doesn't have that bit of the Colony of Slipperman solo in there, it's like oh that that's you know I I miss that bit. Although again, this is the maybe not the first, but you know this is Banks Collins Rutherford it, it yeah. during the solo bit there. You know it's. It's something that is it is the three of them in a you know a harbinger of the future so and that was one of the first times when i think when i saw the musical box like 20 years ago now yeah. when steve quote unquote steve and quote unquote peter left the stage during this part i'm like oh my god this was the first real incarnation of yeah. just banks rutherford collins mm-hmm. on stage just right. the three of them playing you know and you watch rutherford go from facing the audience to walk over towards Tony and Phil yeah. and, and you just the three of them jamming you're like yeah. little did they know back then that yeah. they would, the three of them would carry this band on you know yeah. 15, 20, 25 years later right and I do like how Tony talks about that you know Peter didn't want this bit on the album at all uh, that it was again you know Peter would complain about Tony's long keyboard solos and you know perhaps as a singer rightfully so but, but then you have the Battle of Epping Forest. So don't complain, <laughs> Peter. I know, right. I was going to say, he used up all his lyric uh, yeah, yeah, rights exactly. of that one. <laughs> yeah. But I wonder if something like the ending of Cinema Show was ever planned to be if that keyboard was a kind of a guide for a possible vocal at some point. Or if it was then Tony said, oh no, this can be a keyboard solo. And we'll go from there. I like if that If you can go back to that process, was the creation of that part of it thinking oh this will be a keyboard showcase versus oh no this will be a, something lyrically that we'll figure out oh no we will keep it as a keyboard solo so it emotionally it really works well 
And I think it's a nice transition also into the very end of the album. Um, Isle of Plenty, uh, I, I enjoy the, the recapitulation of the, uh, the, the musical theme. And it, it, I think it bookends the, the album splendidly. How was that an idea that came up in, in the preparation of the album, this kind of reprising? It was something that Pete used to play on the piano. Right. And um, in purely pianistic terms, had it been developed by a different team, it might have sounded a little more like something from, from Mazorsky. I was thinking, um, I think he wanted it to sound a little more pompous. Um, I think what he was after was probably the great gate in Kiev or something sure, like that, right. you know, which was left to another band to do, right. of course, entirely. <laughs> This is the part of the album that is uh, part of the album. It, this is another part of the album that is chock full of English references for us Americans. Mm -hmm. So this is the safe way. The test cooperates. Other ones that I am missing, I'm sure. So. Fine, fair. Okay. Another store, right? And indeed, yeah. Fine. And it's one of those where when scrambled eggs. <laughs> we got the. Well, I had the cassette, so obviously it didn't have the lyrics right. back in the mid '80s. Then you, you get the CD released or whatever, the first time you see the lyrics, you're like, why are these words capitalized like Safeway and Fine Fair and Tesco? <laughs> we didn't, there's just got to be some deeper meaning to them. I would like to know what Fairy Liquid Giant Slashed. Fairy Liquid is a uh, type of washing up liquid. Oh, yes, I do. Okay, I think I've seen that before. I think there was another thing that we didn't, I didn't get what, what that repeating of that 17 i knew 17 and a half yeah, kept it going but then it's actually like a grocery list yeah is that correct yeah that's i mean that's what it looks like in the lyric quote i mean yeah. i don't i still i've been to england quite a few times i still don't understand any of this <laughs> album or especially isle of plenty yeah. but i do english ribs cut down to 47 pence a pound yeah that's what yeah. it is basically yeah. it's it's that whole uh, I, I suspect it's probably something akin to a shopping list or the kind right, of thing yeah. that someone announces over a, a tannoy system at a 
shopping saying these are now down to it's yeah. a bargain go buy your meat cutlets mm-hmm. you know. the original title of this was blue light special <laughs> <laughs> it, it is interesting that it's there's this consumeristic thread you know in in dancing with the moon at night and this piece that book that bookends the album that gives the sense of a concept without it necessarily beating you over the head with this is a concept album the way the lamb might um there's another thing i I wanted to make mention which is at this point in time in the uk and i was a young boy who really didn't understand it at the time but it was a pretty grim time to be in the uk um there was uh huge shortages we were hideously in debt as a country there were power cuts. I remember as a kid having all the power shut off and us mm. sitting in candles. Mm. It was the three-day week where we there, there just literally wasn't enough money to pay people wages, so they worked three days a week rather than five. Mm. Um, it was a very, very poor economic time mm. for, for England. And as a result, um, I think a lot of that, uh, it wasn't necessarily rationing like post-war rationing, but... It got very close to it. There was lots of times when well, I would go along with my mother and there would literally be long shelves of mm. nothing, especially yeah. bread, milk, eggs. Very liquid giant. Very liquid giant. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, and it really was. It was. Mm. I didn't get it at the time. but sure. looking it was back, just your childhood. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty grim time to be alive in England. Yeah. Hmm. And I, I think that with the overlapping lyrics of this shopping list at the end, it, it, it just gives a sense of not knowing what's happening of these are the needs and you know but it's just constantly cycling around what you need here so i could be reading a lot of messages into that yeah, but, but I, that's, think, yeah. I think musically too it's very sad and yeah. it's got a haunting feel yeah. to me this is see the deadly nightshade grow yeah that, 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 that chord, that chord is that very unsettling like yeah. it makes you uncomfortable and it's something i think that you know kind of um, really gets blown out on the next album, on the mm. Lamb, where they they go full on creepy and dark and weird mm. in many in many songs. But this is just like a taste of what's to come. Um, I think um, it's it, a good example yeah. of the incredible burst of creativity that was coming out of the British music scene, mm-hmm. and paralleling that very starkly with the mundane, very grey kind of yeah. world in yeah. which they you know the average person lived in. I mean, this was the time of, as I said, the three-day week, but it was also the time of David Bowie and the Spiders yeah. of Mars, you know. Right. Even in the midst of all this this issue, this aisle of plenty, a, a both aisle in a, in a shopping aisle, but also aisle as an island, yeah. you know, there's, you know, the wordplay that Gabriel uses in that respect, that it's an aisle of plenty, but yet, you know... There's shelves, empty shelves in places. It's the land of King Arthur and Green Shield stamps yeah. all at the same time. And it's a, and it's a further development of of Gabriel's because this was his lyric, but his social consciousness that you know could have started with you know get him out by Friday about rent control and rent mm-hmm. issues in certain ways, and now the the threads that are through this album that have certainly kept on with his music throughout his entire career. Now it's one of the few times. I think you can look forward, not counting the land, which had their musical themes repeated throughout, but Mm -hmm. this and then Duke obviously returns themes, but this one was probably one of the first ones to do that. And I think Steve mentions that a little bit when Mm -hmm. he talked about it. So as an album, 
I think this is one of Genesis's most successful albums as a whole. I may like individual songs on different albums better, but I think that there's, just as a collection of music, this is a very successful, you know, this is probably the first of chronologically that I can really say I think everything on this album is, is at the very least solid. Uh, even something like uh, After the Ordeal that may be a little bit weaker than the rest, it's still a decent track. Uh, whereas I think some of the earlier albums, maybe in the sound of them, maybe in the arrangement, was still a little bit tentative. This sounds like a band that really knows what it's doing. I mean, this album is, like all of their albums, are very. it's very unique. It, it has mm-hmm. its own feel, its own story. Um, I do like that it's like a complete theme. Um, that's mm-hmm. Expect for maybe more for me, <laughs> as we talked about. Um, but overall, it... You know, like I said at the beginning of, of the podcast, this is, you know, because it is such a complete album to me, um, and as, as um, Mike said, the you know, everything's pretty solid on here. This is where I'd like to immerse myself in this album. This is an album, you know, when I when I want to listen to Selling Him by the Pound, I'm not, you know, doing housework or mm-hmm. on the computer. You know, I listen to it. Right. Um, it's one of those albums that demands my attention, and I'm happy to give it with that being said um you know i i i think you know the only the only thing that kind of doesn't make this probably my favorite album Mm -hmm. is just the lyrics um not and and that's just probably because this is not uh the theme you know it doesn't connect with me so even though i appreciate it and i think it works very well Mm -hmm. as an objective listener but for me personally you know Mm -hmm. I'm still trying to figure it out, I guess. <laughs> What's well, the album? It's like the gift that keeps on giving because yeah. I first became attached to it when I was 15, 16. Then obviously there was another set of learning once I got the lyrics and realized that there were some references. And then another set of learning once the internet came and I could actually yeah. look up things like green shield stamps and all these things. And so it's kind of like it's been 30 years of becoming to know this album and, and loving it and knowing all the fine intricacies and the details of it that were not seen when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. When you almost gave up the album. When I almost yeah, gave right? up. <laughs> and, but, but I think for me, it's, it's, it's one album that if someone were looking to get into early Genesis, this is the one I would recommend. Yeah. It's the easiest digestible I wouldn't give them the lamb. The other stuff might not be as mature as, as this. And it sounds the best. It I sounds the best. So if there, if there were anyone who were who was looking to get into early Genesis, I would recommend Selling Him by the Pound. Right. I Mitchell. agree. Yes, and in England, what a great album. The only the only song that I might skip is I Know What I Like, Don't Kill Me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it live. It's amazing. Is that called I Know What I, I Like, why. open brackets, Don't Kill Me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I like, and I don't like, I know what I like. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it, but it's been played so much, but mm. uh, I love it live, as I right. said. Mm-hmm. But again, as you guys said, it, this is a great album. It's a collection of perfect songs, I would say. But uh, as Stacy said also about the lyrics, I don't connect with it's, it's And Tom, you said, about, said something about uh, like learning about, okay, what are these people talking about? And okay, just searching in the internet, what is this? I mean, green stamps, whatever. You know, what, it's what, interesting. What other band gives you homework? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> a lot of homework. And especially for you, Ellie. I mean, I can imagine, like, this This is like a full-time job. I know, right? <laughs> to figure out this album. <laughs> but it's been fun. It's, it's a great album, and I would, if you don't know Genesis at all, I would say... Mm-hmm. 
start with this one. Sure. I would say that if you're look if you're gonna make a Peter Gabriel yeah, yeah, era recommendation. Yeah, have a Fregolian singing. Yeah. Maybe in the Gabriel era, that's yeah. true. As an Englishman who grew up during this time, it it doesn't maybe seem anywhere near as opaque to me mm. as it does to you. It, it in a strange way, and this is going to sound really odd. This was the kind of feeling that that gave rise to a lot of the punk bands because basically they it was a shitty place to live, <laughs> and as a result, you know, you know, a whole lot of youngsters didn't want to live like that any longer. I think that's one of the the great things about this album. It's it's a very, um, for me, a vivid pictorial and auditory excursion into that time. Mm -hmm. But it also, I think for me, the biggest thing that this album taught me is there is a big difference between what is a great album and what is your favourite album. Yes. This is a great album. Yes. It's not my favourite album. I agree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that... um... I'll echo what everybody said. I think it's like Simon said, it's a great album, but it's not my favorite. I think it's, it's the pla- We talked with Peter Gabriel three being kind of a plateau where everything that Gabriel wrote after that had to kind of meet that standard. I think that everything that Genesis did after this album for the next couple of years had to, this was the standard they were working towards. Mm-hmm. And I remember a kind of, you know, talking offline with Steve uh, Hackett, where he said that, you know, touring for this album, he felt like he was in the best band on the planet. Just because, it, like, everything was working, you know, this was the time where he really felt like, this is this is where I should be right now. So, and I think that, you know, listening to those tapes from that era, it's like, yeah, this was this was a hot band. Uh, who really kind of had this material very easily under their fingertips. And easily meaning that they probably worked really hard to get it that way. But it's it was a really great time for this band, and probably to be in this band. So I think we should jump into Tom's poll. Tom shows you his poll. Before we have any premature extrapolation of my poll, uh, <laughs> let's, let's go around and... and say our favorite songs from this album I'll, I'll start mine was mine is the cinema show right now dancing with the moonlit night for me the cinema show dancing with the moonlit night tiebreaker cinema show oh! and you know what's funny because it's not it's not because it's my favorite yeah it's the one track on the album that I would totally miss the most if it was not oh, there. Okay. Because, it, but you know, your favorites change all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I was thinking about that. I was like, if Cinema Show went away, this to me that holds up the whole album. Yeah. So, so Cinema Show is the best. Yeah. It's interesting that none of us said Firth of Fifth, which really was probably the the kind of other track that is kind of the obvious choice here, but I am curious to see what the fans yeah, voted Yeah, I for. wonder... Uh... Right, well, now it's time to whip out my poll. All right. Oh, wow. <laughs> In keeping with the theme of doing things a little bit differently, this podcast, I'm going to start with the least vote-getter oh, okay. and work backwards tension. towards tension. I'm going to build the tension with my poll. We play like the, dr- <laughs> the, the beginning drum part from uh, uh, Epping Forest behind this. <laughs> All right, coming in in last place, or number eight, because there were eight tracks. There were no ties this time. It was a straightforward. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Number eight was Isle of Plenty, mm-hmm. which is kind of understandable. Yeah. It's kind of like a coda of the album. So yeah. pro- one person did say it was their favorite track. Wow. Really? Which, yeah. 
That's a, that's a, uh, reach out to us. We want to hear about why. I think it was the deli man at Safeway. <laughs> uh, coming in at number seven was More Fool Me, oh. which I thought might do a little higher. Yeah, I, it it's, I think it's a decent track. Yeah, yeah. it would be middle of the road, middle middle of the pack, actually. Yeah. So. All right, number six, After the Ordeal. Okay. All right, in the top five, number five is I Know What I Like. All right. Number four, The Battle of Epping Forest. Right. Percentage-wise, how are we at with Epping Forest? What percent of people voted uh, for we're, that? we're probably around 6% of the vote went for okay. Epping Forest. So I know, so Battle of Epping Forest is higher than I know what I like. That surprises me. Yeah. I, I think probably the same reason that Ellie said is that at this point, we've heard it so much that yeah. it's hard to... And people would probably yeah. vote for the live version over, the, over this version, yeah. I think. Okay. Like, if we asked... Like favorite Genesis song, I bet I know what I like would be higher than Epping Forest. That's fair. Yeah. I'll give that one to you, Mike. <laughs> uh, well, Yay, Mike gets one. <laughs> if you're keeping score, I have two. Mike has one. <laughs> All right, in the top three, number three with 14% of the vote was Dancing with the Moonlit Night. <sighs> We got the bronze, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> which, don't, which, don't we always? <laughs> which is actually kind of interesting when I think back at the lyrics is that the actual lyric used in the song is dancing out with the moon that night, but yeah. they preferred to leave out of the title, the word out. Okay, that's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> We're taking yours back. <laughs> All right, and number two, with 32% of the vote, was Firth of Fifth, right. which means the top getter was the cinema show with almost 40% of the vote. Wow. Good we know what you. we like. I think so. And we like what we know, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Holla! But I'll, 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 I, that is not a surprising breakdown to me. Because right, the I top think three that, aren't yeah. too surprising. I, and, and I'm actually not surprised that, that Firth of Fifth beat out Dancing with the Moonlit Night for, for the silver. Um, but... You know, people aren't always right. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, this brings to a conclusion another thrilling episode of Tabletop Genesis. Uh, before we leave, again, remember, buy Simon's album. Valdez is the band. The album is called... This. This. I'll have to think about that title. And uh, But I'll give it the thumbs up for now. You'll understand it when you see the cover. Oh, okay. Very nice. So. It's a Simon going. Yes. <laughs> Pointing to his crotch. <laughs> and, uh, we'd like to thank Steve for sharing his thoughts yes. on uh, this album. Thank you, classic Thank you, album. Thank you Mr. H. And uh, this is Mike signing off. This is Ellie. This is Simon. This is Stacy. And this is Tom. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have our shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis. And you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes.